When I was a candidate to be pastor at Orlando Grace Church, one of the things that struck me very quickly was the the size of the global fit, footprint that this church has, the number of missionaries that this church is supporting and involved with. And then it really hit me, these weren't just random missionaries that this church had met. These are all people who were members at Orlando Grace Church. It really is phenomenal in my mind, to see the, the members that this church has sent out all over the world. So the, with, as we do our series from, from August to Advent, you know, walking through, earth, through Acts, it's titled To the Ends of the Earth. We, throughout the whole series, are going to have our sent ones uh, tell a little bit about what they're doing, how we can pray, and then read the scripture for us. So we're thankful for the Armands and what they've been doing and being a part of our, our service this morning. As you heard in multiple languages, our text is Acts 6 uh, this week. Stephen has just been falsely accused of blaspheming God by speaking against Moses and the temple. And now he stands in front of the high priest and he really only has to answer one question. Are these charges true? That's what the high priest wants to know. And it's important, I think, before we dive in to see that it's not just a theological debate that's going on here. So there, there is a theological debate, certainly, but there's even more. Because in that day and age, Rome was actually protecting the power of the Sanhedrin and pr- protecting, allowing them to have the power over the Jewish people that they'd, that they'd had for a long time. And also protecting them from outside forces. So if you're an Israelite leader, if you're a leader in Jerusalem... What happens when that temple is torn down? What happens when there are maybe warring sects and warring factions over how we're going to worship, how we're going to rule, who's really in charge? You know, what the scripture says about pretty important things like who God is. Well, if that were to happen, likely Rome is going to pull their protection away. They're going to take away the, the, the authority of the Sanhedrin and just impose Roman rule on everybody. So if you are the high priest, you are very concerned with this, uh, with this rumor going around that Stephen is saying that Jesus is going to actually tear down this temple. So there's a lot going on kind of behind the scenes that is, you know, Westerners, 2,000 years later, it's hard for us to fully appreciate And we have to understand that they so identified the temple with Yahweh that their very, that its very existence protected them completely in their mind from anything that bad that might happen, that might happen. And if that temple were to be torn down, it would represent God leaving them, God forsaking them, and then they would be uh, open to all kinds of bad things happening. So this temple is important to these people for a lot of reasons. It operated, sadly, in much the way of like a good luck charm might operate today. And in this, ch- in this chapter, Stephen is answering this question, are these accusations true? And what's interesting is that he doesn't immediately dive in to yes or no. He does something more extensive. He goes through four really important individuals, four really important eras of Old Testament history to kind of say it's not a yes or no question. There's more going on here. The problem is that you don't understand the scriptures. And because you don't understand the scriptures, you don't understand the temple and the Mosaic law and everything that Jesus has come here now to teach. And so I was thinking about what he's doing. He's, he's calling these religious leaders to repentance. That, that's what he's doing, which is a pretty bold move for Stephen to be calling the religious leaders of the day to repent of all the ways that they had misunderstood and misused and mistaught the scriptures. And I mean, I've, I've been a part of 
calling people to repentance, either one-on-one or in groups, and it's never fun. You know, hopefully, if you've ever been a part of that process, hopefully you go not eager to do it, but with a lump in your throat. Hopefully you examine your own heart before you do it. Hopefully you have nothing but love and, and humility and really just thinking about the other person's best. That's, that's what we do. That's why we go to somebody and call somebody repentance. And I myself have been called to repentance before, and, and it stings. It's not fun. But when there is humility and love, and I really have a deep sense that they're for me, they're, they're there, not because they want to be, because they're for me and they want to see the best version of Jim possible, I receive it, and it may take a couple days or weeks, but I appreciate them for doing that. But I can honestly say I've never been in a situation like this, where there's such a mismatched power dynamic that I'm calling somebody repentance who with one word can order my execution. That's the scenario that Stephen is in. And I admire the fact that he didn't just say yes or no. Because if he did, he he could have said yes or no and gotten off the hook. He could have said, yeah, I was teaching that, but what you don't understand is Jesus was really talking about his body, not your temple. So are we good? Can I go? Or he could have said, no, I didn't say that at all. Jesus is talking about his body, not the temple. You've totally misunderstood it. Now are things cool? Can I go? But instead he said something else. Stephen cares more about their hearts and their salvation and the glory of God, so he tells them the truth. It isn't a yes or no question. They don't understand the scriptures, and because they don't understand the scriptures, they don't understand the temple, they don't understand the law, and ultimately they do not understand God. The temple is not some sort of good luck charm that's keeping you safe right now. Just because God used to meet you there in a special way during worship, God is much bigger than that building. And so Stephen uses what John Stott calls four epics, four epics to walk through these epics and to try and show them that the Old Testament is clear that God is not some spirit locked in some, big, some building. God is much bigger than this. God is present with his people and he is no way limited in the way that you are limiting God by the way you're associating with that temple. So we just want to, I want to walk through these four epics that Stephen clearly walks through. And I want to see one truth about God in each epic. And so the first truth that we're going to see comes from the epic of Abraham and the patriarchs. And that truth is that there was a holy people before there was a holy place. So Abraham, Stephen, he, he's, he doesn't assume, he's, he's really going through the Abrahamic story. And he, he's clear that God made himself known to Abraham before there was ever such a thing as a mosaic law or a temple. And, he, and when he goes to Abraham, Abraham is nothing more than a pagan nomad. His family, they worship other gods. They are not, they're not some sort of spiritual or moral or righteous family. They are just nomadic pagans when God enters in here. And he calls Abraham, Abram, who would later become Abraham. And he doesn't say, just say, follow me in your daily actions. He says, follow me from Ur over to Haran, and then from Haran all the way over to Canaan, which is important because in Canaan, Abraham had no inheritance. He had no land, which meant no security. That's what God was calling Abraham to do. And then in that context, God promised Abraham two really important things. He promised him that he would possess that land through his descendants. So that's really two two promises. You will have descendants more numerous than the stars and they will possess this land. 
Never mind the fact that Abraham and Sarah are really old, past childbearing age, and that God tells him, oh, by the way, before that happens, your descendants, they're going to be enslaved and ill-treated in Egypt for 400 years. So what is it that we're looking here? What's Stephen wanting us to see here? That there was a holy people before there was ever a holy place, a God that called a people to himself and a God who pledged himself to that people. That's the main thing that Stephen's wanting us to see in this Abraham and Abrahamic epic. But there are two other little things that I think we have to see to be able to appreciate what Stephen is wanting to say as he builds this argument. And the first is that God wasn't limited by their hard hearts. You know, he wasn't limited by the fact that Abraham and his family, they were pagan worshipers. He wasn't uh, limited by the fact that it seems like, you know, every turn of the page of the Bible, Abraham and his people were showing in some way that we don't fully trust you, God, to do what you say you're going to do. And Stephen seems to be continually emphasizing the fact that it's God who is initiating here. He isn't waiting around for someone who is, who's good and has a good enough heart or a moral enough life or a spiritual enough disposition Stephen is making it clear that God reaches who he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And he did this all before there was ever a temple, a law, or a tabernacle. And I was just, I was convicted this week about how often I can look at certain people and think, well, they are just too far gone. They've given themselves to sin. They're too far. And when I say that, do you know what I'm I'm logically assuming? Is there was a time when I wasn't. There was a time when I was wise enough, moral enough, spiritual enough to see my sin and turn to God. Paul goes so far as to say no one seeks God, not one in the book of Romans. I think because of that, we can can look at this, and this is a little bit of 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 a parenthesis, but we can look at this and praise God that any of us believes because we were called the same way that Abraham is and because of that we should be the most humble people because none of us are moral enough spiritual enough or wise enough or loving enough we should be humble we should be the most serious about our personal piety and holiness about our prayer and we should be the most motivated to go out and tell other people about Jesus because we know it's not up to us to convince them we know that God's going before and calling people so that's the first observation still in the Abrahamic epic the second and simple is that God wasn't limited by the circumstances. You know, we can often think of, well, these circumstances are just so insurmountable, so unbelievable that God might be limited in some way. Well, Abraham had no kids. He and his wife, again, very old, well beyond childbearing age. He wasn't limited, God that is, by the fact that all of these people are going to be enslaved and ill-treated for over 400 years. In fact, he kind of like tauntingly or boldly says, oh, yeah, by the way, this will happen, no big deal. I mean, it's like God likes the chips being stacked against him. And I think Stephen really knows this, and that's, that has to be fueling some of this boldness and this courage that, that's fueling him speaking to the high priest at that point in time. So that's the, that's the first epic. And at the end of this epic, Stephen makes note that this never-ending commitment that God has made to Abraham, he then makes, he renews to his son Isaac, and then again to his son Jacob, and then again to Jacob's 12 sons, which brings us logically to the next, next epic, Joseph in Egypt. This is verses 9 through 19, and we see our second truth, that God is not limited by geography or culture. This is important, because remember, the Jews, the Jewish leaders feel like, we're safe, Why? 
because of our geography and culture, because we are in Jerusalem, we are a part of a Jewish culture and we have the temple, the most important part of our culture, the Mosaic law and the temple. We're okay with that. Like we're okay because of that, excuse me. But what we're seeing in the second epic is God is not limited by geography and culture. So we're jumping from Mesopotamia all the way over to Egypt. And if there's any question that Egypt is what Stephen wants us to see, you see that he says Egypt six times here. Egypt, 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 Egypt. Like we're supposed to hear Egypt. So AKA God's presence is over in Egypt. He's working in Egypt, AKA not Jerusalem and the temple. He's not, he's not limited to that geography and that culture. And Egypt would not have been anywhere that you would have wanted your people to be. You know, Egypt was not a, considered a very godly place. And in fact, Jacob would have, I think, mourned the thought that his descendants would have even had to stay there for one day. Because if you go back and look at God renewing the Abrahamic covenant with Isaac, Jacob's father, he says this. This is Genesis 26 two. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. <laughs> Dwell in the land of which I shall give you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. So the promise is with this land, not in Egypt. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. And if there's any doubt that this is the point that, that Stephen is trying to make, look at verse nine. And the patriarchs, people they held in high esteem, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Remember, we're talking about God's presence being limited over to that temple. He's saying, well, Joseph was sold by our fathers over to Egypt and God was still with him. And then lest they or we or anybody else think, well, maybe Joseph was some sort of exception. In verse 11, Stephen makes it clear that he wasn't any kind of exception, that God's presence is gonna go with all of, Ju of Joseph's family. So he's not limited by geography. God is in the hard places. He isn't limited to the cultures that tend to honor him more. I mean, we can look over the course of the Bible. We can look in, in modern history and see that sometimes God's doing his greatest work in the hardest places in the places that honor him the least. I mean, you see Israel called out of Egypt. You see God speaking to Egypt through Daniel where? In Babylon, you see Paul doing some of his mightiest works where? In the epicenter of the pagan Roman empire, Rome. And then, I mean, we can flash, fast forward to modern times. I think it's especially appropriate because we heard from the Armands uh, who are uh, working in Bible translation. We can look at William Tyndale who brought us the very first English Bible in a Roman Catholic culture that burned him alive for doing so. We can look at Frederick Douglass who preached the gospel and freed slaves at the height of the tension of the American slave trade. We can look at Bonhoeffer and Cory Tim Boone under Hitler's tyranny. And I believe God is still working some of the darkest places. And I say dark cultures that from the top down are, are trying to suppress the Christian message. They're trying to make sure that people aren't spreading the message that Stephen is spreading. Cultures like Iran, Afghanistan, North Korea, China, where the Armands are working that we're not gonna say. Do any of those places have a temple building? That's what Stephen is wanting them to hear. Yet God still works there. 
And if I can say this, if, if that's a true statement, this is one of the reasons that we need to be sending missionaries to the places that we might think are the hardest and the least likely to see fruit. Because God's presence is not limited by geography or culture. Then Stephen shifts to the third and largest epic. He shifts to Moses and the Exodus. And our third truth about God that we see is God is not limited by our rejection. Man's response to God, man's response to God's deliverance doesn't limit God's plan and God's sovereignty at all. These are verses 22 through 44. And it makes sense that this would be the longest section because remember he's being accused of directly opposing and speaking against Moses and everything that Moses had, had brought them. And so if you read this, you can see Stephen really holds Moses in high regard. I mean, he, he, he's, he's, he's really lifting up Moses. He goes back, because remember God made two promises to Abraham. What were they? Descendants and land. And now when we get to Moses, we see God really delivering on this promise. And when, as he, as he walks through this epic, he, it, it can feel a little bit jerky if you don't know what he's doing, but he's reiterating the first points before he delivers the third point. So the first point he reiterates is God isn't, isn't limited by circumstances. We've already looked at that, but look, look at the story of Moses. It's when the suffering was the greatest and, and the, the hopes were the lowest in that context, God sent Moses. And then he reiterates the second point. God is not limited by geography. Remember, we're in Egypt, and then Moses takes him out of Egypt, not right into the promised land, but where? Through the Red Sea, into the wandering, over to Mount Sinai. There's no temple, there's no tabernacle, there's no Mosaic law, but yet God is still with them, still leading them, still protecting them, and still blessing them. I mean, you can just look at the, the story of the burning bush in verse 33 in Stephen's speech. He says, then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. You're like, wait, holy ground. Are you saying that there's holy ground outside of the temple? Yes, because God is holy and wherever God is, that is holy ground. So Stephen is reiterating those first two points. Then he gives us something new. He says that God is not limited by our rejection or acceptance of him. So Stephen makes clear that God hears the cries of his people. He raises a deliverer in Moses. And in, starting around verse 35, Stephen's really clear. Our fathers rejected Moses before he was even called by God. So it's like this double rejection. You remember Moses intervened into an argument, a dispute between two Hebrew men. And he, in trying to help, they looked at him and just said, who made you ruler and judge? So Moses was rejected by the Israelites before he even left Egypt. And Stephen wants us to hear that the, the rejection of Moses is actually the rejection of God. And if you know that Stephen is, is going to end up calling for repentance, you can start to hear the heat turned up a little bit. I imagine if you knew Stephen and you knew what he was going to do, and I think he told people probably this is my plan. This is the part, if I'm one of Stephen's friends in the audience, I'm starting to get a little nervous. Then I'm just going to read his words directly to the high priest. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses 
who said, the Israel, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness and with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. So you hear Stephen saying, you're accusing me of saying something against Moses. Let's go, he's going to do something with this. Let's go all the way back and look at our fathers. They, they actually rejected Moses and longed for Egypt. They wanted to go back. That's our fathers. And in verse 42, Stephen says, and at that moment, when they rejected God, God rejected them. And of course, this is the golden calf. And I don't have time to rehash all of that because just two weeks ago, I talked, we walked through the golden calf when we looked at Exodus. So you can go back and read it or listen to that. But you can see the judgment that God brought on them because when they rejected God, God rejected them. And then Stephen quotes Amos, who's five centuries later talking about the corrupt worship back in the desert in Israel. Acts seven forty two. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So we're seeing that that same rejection, it didn't, it didn't cease there. This is continuing, going to cause the exile to Babylon. God is not limited by who accepts him and who rejects him. And there are whole streams of theology that say that God can work on this earth when we give him permission through prayer and other things. We, you know, poor God, he's in, in heaven. Thank goodness we're here to give him permission to work in this world. But how can you read this and think that? I mean, how can you read Stephen's speech and, and adhere to some sort of theology that thinks God's limited by our rejection or acceptance of him or some way we... We give him permission to work. And so going back to the golden calf, what did God say to Moses? I'm wiping them all out and I'm going to restart with you. I, that, 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 I, I'm, I don't lose anything. They're wiped out. We're going to start all over with you, which isn't exactly what happened. Again, go back and read or listen to the sermon. But the point is that God will do what he wants to do, how he wants to do it, when he wants to do it, regardless if we're going to go along or not. Every person at the end of time, every human being who has ever lived will glorify God. All of us. Some of us will glorify God as objects of his mercy and love and acceptance and grace. And others of us will glorify God as objects of his just wrath. And this is setting up the exact question that Stephen is going to ask these Jewish leaders. How do you want to glorify God? As objects of his grace through repentance or objects of his just wrath through continuing put your hope in that man-made temple where God doesn't even dwell anymore. So, it's heating up and then we transition from the third to the fourth and final epoch, the temple. And so this is the reign of David and Solomon. We're talking about the temple and, and in my mind, this is when Stephen passes the point of no return. <laughs> At this, after he, he says what he's about to say, either they're repenting or he's dying. There's just like, there's no middle ground in my mind here. And in this fourth epic, we get our fourth, and I think we're building up to this main truth about God. And that truth in verses 50, 45 through 54 
is God is not limited to that temple. That's what Stephen is really wanting them to see. And we have to remember, Stephen's not down on the temple. He reiterates the fact that the tabernacle was good. You know, that the tabernacle was built in meticulous uh, order along with the directions that God had given Moses. Every jot and tittle was covered. Our fathers carried that tabernacle all the way to the promised land into Jerusalem where under the reign of David and Solomon, this more permanent temple is built. He's saying the temple is good. The tabernacle is good. I'm not against it. And as you read that, you might think, well, are you, are you working against your main argument here? You're saying God is not limited to the temple, but at the same time, you're saying the temple is good and right. So are you contradicting yourself, Stephen? And the answer is no. The temple was good and right in its time, in its place in redemptive history for the purpose that it was to serve. But God is not permanently bound in that building. That building does not act as some sort of good luck charm that's going to get us out of, out of trouble. And Stephen makes this really clear in verse 48. He says, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands as the prophet says. And he's quoting Isaiah here. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Do not my, did not my hand make all of these things? Everything we see, all of creation, all of the universe. And then Paul actually makes the same point in Acts later in, ver- in chapter 17. Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And there may be some, you know, in the, in the audience who might say, well, you know, that was Paul and Stephen, you know, this is, this is something new. This, they're bringing a corrupt message to the scriptures. Well, they can't say that because you can go all the way back to Solomon himself at the dedication service for this new temple. In Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings eight twenty seven, Solomon himself says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So Stephen is just driving this point home and you can feel the heat being turned up because he has made a really excellent argument through these four epics that in none of them was God's presence ever limited in any way, in any way by a particular place. And on the contrary, The God of Israel is present everywhere, acting everywhere, how he wants when he wants. There's no limit to the God of Israel. And in every stage, he's gracious to us, adapting with our sin for our good and for his glory. Always present with us, blessing us and leading us where he wants us to go. So now we get to the rebuke. Stephen boldly declares to the Jewish leaders, you are like our fathers. How do you think that's going to go over? Like a lead balloon. 51. You stiff-necked people. So I'm aware of 10 places. This, this is not a new term. 10 places that either Moses or the prophets used this term against Israel. So th- there's a sting just in the term because they know this comes from Moses and the prophets. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have not betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So they've called Stephen to give an account. He's standing in front of them and saying, no, you're the one that needs to give an account here. Your fathers, our fathers killed the prophets, but now you have murdered the one the prophets prophesied about. You were given the law and you did not obey it. You don't know the scriptures. You're not teaching the scriptures correctly. This religion isn't about your actions. It isn't about a building. It's about the heart. You though, you have resisted the Holy Spirit. You have betrayed the Messiah and you have broken the law. And so now you, you get to decide how you want to glorify God. Is it going to be as objects of his grace and mercy and love through repentance and turning to Jesus Christ? Or is it going to be as objects of his just wrath for the way that you have turned against him in the same way that our fathers did? So this has to be one of the least seeker-friendly messages that I'm aware of in all of the New Testament. And I call this Stephen's defense. And it is a defense, but it's not a defense of Stephen. Stephen's not trying to get off here. It's a defense of God's glory and his plan of salvation as he is laid out in his holy scriptures with little to no concern of his own physical safety in the process. But Stephen doesn't just accuse them. And this is one of the things I love about the Bible. Wherever we're learning some sort of moral teaching or yes or no or do and don't do, we see the heart of it too. And Stephen really does get to the heart of what's going on with these Jewish leaders and many of the Israelites and he does this through these parallel verses that are easy for us to miss but would not have been missed by the original audience so you look at verses 41 and 48 these aren't mistakenly similar they are purposely similar and no one I don't think in that original original audience would have missed it so in verse 41 Stephen's talking about what the golden calf And he says, they offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their hands. Now, all of us know that was bad. (laughs) That that was bad. He shouldn't have done that. But then in verse 48, talking about the temple, Stephen says, the most high does not dwell in houses, what? Made with hands. So he is directly correlating the golden calf to the temple here. So this is, this is a big deal. Remember, God's presence is no longer in that temple. Ezekiel had said in his time that the Lord had removed his presence from that temple because of the rebellion of Israel. So now that temple to the Pharisees is the same thing as the golden calf was to the newly freed Israelites. That would have been a very tough pill for these people to swallow. The heart of the problem here is that these Jewish leaders and much of the Israelite people, they got their their joy, their fulfillment, their security, their identity, their significance, their meaning, everything from what they could achieve on their own, by their own hands for God. That's the fundamental problem. We, we built that building. We're safe because it's here. We follow the ways that we have manipulated the Mosaic law. So God owes us something. That's, that's the heart flaw here. John Piper on this passage, he says, they wanted a kind of God and a kind of worship in which they could demonstrate their own power and their own wisdom and their own righteousness and their own morality and their own religious zeal. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that the temple at this point is nothing much more than the Tower of Babel when you look at the heart disposition. Their joy did not come from God. Their identity did not come from God. It came from what they could achieve 
And the sense of God owes us because of that. And God was not going to let them do that. He was not going to let them limit who he was and the blessing that he desires to be for the entire earth. So is there anything, if that's the heart message, that we here today can hear and learn from that? We, who live in the wealthiest, most powerful nation ever to exist in the history of the world... Each of us builds more in a year than most of humanity could have conceived of building in an entire lifetime. We created the skyscraper. We created the atomic bomb. We ended the world wars. We put a man on the moon. We have made the world safe and peaceful for the the gospel go to the world. Surely God owes us something because of what we have built. We have created free enterprise We have created luxury beyond imagine. We build and find our security and our identity and our businesses and our bank accounts and our beautiful bodies and even our church buildings. And because of that, we can think, because we we think we use these things for our good and our glory that God owes us something. And if there is a culture that could ever be at more risk of rejoicing in the work of our hands in a way that obligates God in some way towards us, I think it's ours more than it is even the Israelites. So Stephen is asking the Pharisees to give an account and repent. And God, to everyone who has ever read the speech or heard the speech of Stephen, throughout the history of mankind is asking the same thing. Give an account and repent. Turn to me. Because the sins of the Pharisees are our sins as well. God is asking us, where is your faith? How are you going to give an account? What kind of God are you going to worship? Are you going to worship a small God that's limited to the things that you can build and you can do? Are you going to worship the limitless God of the Bible who is not bound by little things like time, circumstance, geography, unfaithfulness, or what we can build on this earth? And as we're going to see next week, the Pharisees don't repent. And in less than 50 years, there are not two stones left on that temple. So are we going to respond with softer hearts than they did? Or are we going to wait and see God dismantle our idols in the exact same way? When Jesus allowed the temple of his body to be destroyed, he did so to end that kind of religion, to free us from that kind of bondage. We are as guilty of Jesus' death as every Pharisee and Sadducee in that room because it is our past, current, and future sins that helped put Jesus on that cross. We rejected him like the Israelites rejected Moses. We rejected him like the Israelites rejected the prophets. We rejected him like the Pharisees rejected Jesus in that day. But he is still faithful when we are faithless. We bring nothing to Jesus, yet we are offered everything to him if we will just repent and turn to him, if we will acknowledge that that's, that, that is correct. I have rejected you, I'm a sinner, and Jesus is my only hope. Because if we do give an account that way, by repenting of our sin and turning to Jesus, then all of our sin is wiped away. Then all of our pride is forgotten then all of our unfaithfulness is replaced by the perfect faithfulness, righteousness, and holiness of Jesus Christ for eternity. And on that day, when we repent for the very first time, God begins a work that will never be stopped. 
He makes us his children in whom he is conforming into the perfect image of his son and who will dwell with him without any presence of sin for eternity in the new kingdom. This is what Stephen understood so well. This is why Stephen had such a high regard for for God's glory over his safety. And this is a hard passage. And this is one of the reasons we practice just walking through books of the Bible. I, I, we, we, it makes us talk about the hard things. But it's the hard things that lead to the best things. So instead of really setting up our time of response after our prayer, I'm just going to pray and sit down. And I want all of us to consider our heart disposition to God. Have, have we repented that first time and turned to Jesus and given, our, given, him, given our lives to him? And if that's true, and if that was real, has that created a pattern of weekly, daily, hourly doing the same thing? Repenting of our sin and turning to Jesus. Repenting of our sin and turning to Jesus. Because only there we can find the freedom and the love and the grace that we're all looking for. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you tell us the hard things. But when you do, you tell us the hard things with reason. You tell us the hard things by exposing our heart's condition. And you tell us the hard things by showing us the way. And the way is Jesus Christ. Jesus has taken on all the wrath that we deserve in our rebellion and giving us everything that he deserves in his perfect, faithful, holy, righteous life. And I pray that over the next moment or so that you would use this time to solidify that more in us, to grow us in our understanding and our experience of your grace and your mercy and your love. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.